in the first of five Massey Lectures for 1967. From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. This year's lectures are by a man who is noted for his part in making history. What I'm saying today is, America, you must be born again! Ideas presents Dr. Martin Luther King. Great radio is everywhere, but you can't be. Which is why we listen to everything we can get our ears on and bring you the best radio stories we discover worldwide each week on ReSound. This is United States, summer 1967. The older minister came toward Dr. King and took his hands in both of his and said, You're shaking this world, brother. You're shaking this world. Back in 1967, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation's program, Ideas, persuaded Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. to be their guest lecturer to celebrate, of all things, Canada's centennial. The CBC recorded King a handful of times, once just after he had been released from prison. But how did they get this access to King, and what was going through his mind at this time of great upheaval? This is the story behind the story, and a revealing snapshot of a man struggling to stay the course he had set out for himself and the nation, as told by those who knew him well, like Harry Belafonte and biographer David J. Garrow, among others. Here is To Heal a Sick Nation, hosted by Paul Kennedy. 1963, on a sweltering August afternoon, we stood in Washington, D.C. I tried to talk to the nation about a dream. I have a dream that I have a dream today. I have a dream today. I have a dream. And I must confess to you today that not long after talking about that dream, I started seeing it turn into a nightmare. I'm Paul Kennedy, and this is Ideas, with the untold story of Martin Luther King Jr. and his appearance on this program in 1967, just a few months before he was assassinated. Nonviolence is no longer the major weapon of the civil rights struggle in the United States. Violence is now the dominant weapon. To many, Martin Luther King seems almost like a prehistoric relic. A nation that will keep people in slavery for 244 years will thingify them and make them things. And a nation that will exploit economically will have to have foreign investments and everything else, and it will have to use its military might to protect them. All of these problems are tied together. What I'm saying today is, America, you must be born again. This is United States, summer 1967. But just across the border in Canada, 1967 looked completely different. Canada was 100 years old, and the producers of ideas had a decision to make. Well, my name is Lou Auerbach, and I joined Ideas 
as an immigrant from the United States in early August 1967. And one of the very, very first things that I encountered was this discussion. Who are we going to get to be the Massey Lecturer in 1967? The Massey Lectures began in 1961 and later became an annual five-part series broadcast on ideas. The plan was to invite someone whose thinking had really restructured a field of thought. My name is Janet Somerville, and in 1967, I had the privilege of working on the Massey Lectures of Dr. Martin Luther King. We were thinking that it should be different that year because it was centennial year. And uh, being a brash and somewhat ignorant American, I totally ignored the fact that it was centennial year, totally paid attention to the issues of the Vietnam War and the race riots. And I said, you have to get Martin Luther King. History happened. Every Canadian news broadcast and television screen was full of the scenes in Newark and and Detroit. Detroit. Yeah, Detroit, right at the border. There was, uh, it was explosive. It was so much more passionately consequential than our centennial celebrations. That's what happened. History happened. Sunday morning magazine. The world watches in horror as one United States city after another becomes a battleground. We'll have a sports roundup, but first... Janet Somerville then wrote to Dr. King. This is dated August 11th, 1967. Dear Dr. King, as you probably know, with the paroxysms of these past months in American cities, in Vietnam, in the Middle East... I, I didn't think Dr. King would say yes. This summer's harsh new evidence has made the case for nonviolence harder to hear. We need to hear it argued. And it became obvious as well that you, Dr. King, should be persuaded, if possible, to do the speaking. The questioning, of course, I, is... I didn't see how he could do that, Dr. King, when he was so completely and intensely caught up in the vortex of the civil rights movement and the peace movement. Anything implied by the question, is it human to hope to move forward without violence is relevant to the series we would like to broadcast. I very much hope it doesn't look impossible to you. If it is possible, we will begin the welcome work. I would have said no if I were Dr. Martin Luther King, but they said yes. History continued to happen. America's war in Vietnam was escalating, and its inner cities were boiling over with anger. My name is Harry Belafonte. Harry Belafonte was a key supporter and friend of Dr. King's throughout his career. Dr. King was quoted as having said that his dream has turned into a nightmare. And I think what happened in 67 and the periods just before then, uh, what he thought was America with a deep moral sense of justice had been overrun by these forces of evil and that uh, all we need to do was to step in and identify that fact and that somehow the evil would recede, go away maybe, and that the real America would get a chance to reveal itself. 
But the fact is that uh, instead of America becoming less villainous, it uh, displayed its evil almost in its full might. My name is Dorothy Cotton. I'm very happy and proud to say that Dr. King was a, actually a close friend. African-American people and white allies as well were coming to a place of no longer accepting segregation, American-style apartheid. It was just happening. Actions, uh, uh, protest actions were springing up all over the place. Let's clear up one thing. Let's, let's quit calling. History is going to make you out of a lie if you keep calling these things rights. Let, let me get this message straight to you now. These ain't no rights. These are rebellions. The same kind of rebellion that we had in 1776 or 17. They were outbursts. I never called them riots. I called them social outbursts that uh, reflected the anger and rage of the people. Herman Blake is a sociologist at the University of South Carolina and was a student activist in the 1960s. There was oppression by those who were in charge of society, particularly uh, local police forces and others like that. I don't want to call Martin Luther King out of touch. I would say the whole damn nation was out of touch. And I knew that I could never again raise my voice against the violence of the oppressed in the ghettos without having first spoken clearly to the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today, my own government. King's message throughout 1967 was that racism, the Vietnam War, and poverty were all connected. But many people didn't want to hear it. And when he confronted America with it in this speech at the Riverside Church on April 4th of that year, he made himself new enemies. For the sake of those boys, for the sake of this government, for the sake of the hundreds of thousands trembling under our violence, I cannot be silent. In 1967, the Vietnam conflict was a war that was still supported by virtually all liberal democratic politicians. Opposition to the war was not yet uh, respectable or popular in the way that it, it would become uh, four or five years later. David Garrow is the author of the Pulitzer Prize-winning biography of Martin Luther King, Bearing the Cross. He says the tipping point for King's refusal to keep silent came in the winter of that year. In February of 1967, when he was on a very uh, rare, brief vacation to Jamaica, he happened to see some full-color photographs that were published in a left-wing magazine of the time called Ramparts Magazine, photos that showed the impact of napalm on young children. Uh, the sorts of burns they suffered. So the impact of, of these awful, traumatic, full-color photos from Vietnam really resolved King and children and the aged to speak out against the war. They watch as we pause in that water. They wander into the towns and see thousands of the children, homeless, without clothes, running in packs on the streets like animals. They see the children degraded by our soldiers 
as they beg for food. They see the children selling their sisters to our soldiers. We have destroyed their two most cherished institutions, the family and the village. We have destroyed their land and their crops. We have cooperated in the crushing of the nation. The famous speech he gave at Riverside Church, everything was at stake. Everything was at stake. The President of the United States had a stake in the war, Lyndon Johnson, and as this thing escalated, there was a huge amount invested, both in the civil rights movement and in the anti-war movement. And when these two movements came together, it was a wretched moment for the American ruling class. It's a wretched moment for the Pentagon, a wretched moment for the President, and to gain the President's animus, to gain his, his distaste for us, was a dangerous place for Dr. King to have stepped into. The giant triplets of racism, militarism, and economic exploitation are incapable of being conquered. The Western arrogance of feeling that it has everything to teach others and nothing to learn from them is not just this business of burning human beings with napalm, of sending men home from dark and bloody battlefields physically handicapped and psychologically deranged, cannot be reconciled with wisdom, justice, and love. Oh, my friends, if that is any one thing that we must see today, is that these are revolutionary times. We were aware of the, of the great sermon he'd given in the Riverside Church when he fully publicly came out against the Vietnam War. How it was for him a, a symbol of the decline of America into pagan imperialism, you know? That's what you were hoping to get in the Master Lecture? Well, we didn't want it to be less than the Riverside Church sermon, yeah. We, we wanted the full force of Martin Luther King's thought. We didn't want something politely accommodated. My own suspicion is that they assumed a government-owned broadcasting system would be timid. Well, <laughs> there's a lot of people in Canadian history who have worked very hard to make sure that the CBC will not always be timid. In fact, will seldom be timid. The first lectures were to be recorded in New York by the sound engineer for ideas, Del McKenzie. When I was recording one of the Massey lectures, uh, he was in a, a suite in one of the, like, Third Avenue hotels. Like you, you actually sat on the other side of the glass and recorded Martin Luther yeah, King. Yeah, there wasn't any glass. This was done in a hotel room in one case and then another. So it wasn't a studio? No, no. What I remember is that the first two tapes were really disappointing. In what way? Well, they were boring. They sound terrible. They sound flat. And I remember we had some conversation about this because they went on air, and I don't... Janet, maybe you remember how are we going to improve on these things because the, the lectures were really boring to listen to. The Best of Ideas presents 
The Massey Lectures for 1967 by Martin Luther King. A million words will be written and spoken to dissect the ghetto outbreaks. You take a preacher, especially a preacher in the black church tradition, I mean a a sermon in Dr. King's church it is a dialogical thing. You know, there's lots of emotional exchange between the congregation and the preacher. There's no human community to dialogue with, and it's not very inspiring, you know. They were probably among the most boring ideas programs ever produced. He flagrantly violates building codes and regulations. I had the very challenging mission of going to New York and telling the great Martin Luther King that it wasn't quite good enough. (laughs) How old were you at the time? At the time, I was, I think, 27 years old. So off Janet Somerville went to New York, 27 years old, a committed Catholic with a degree in theology, and having to tell the Baptist Nobel laureate Dr. Martin Luther King to muscle up his lectures. She wanted his message to be more radical, when many of his old allies in the American media were losing interest in him. David Garrow. By 1967, not only were the major American newspaper voices much more critical of King, there was also an explicit attitude of derision towards King in some of the more left-wing white press. Several writers in quote-unquote progressive uh, white magazines really dismissed King as as irrelevant to the future of American politics and, and the black community. So it's very important for people to realize how by the last eight or nine months of his life, King is viewed as this voice from the past, someone who's almost, uh, even though he's still alive, more a figure of history than a figure for the future. But Janet saw a different Martin Luther King once she got to New York. It was a warm, respectful dinner of people meeting each other uh, in a strong, with a strong sense of common vision, you know. It was not a confrontation. Martin Luther King is a Christian minister, and I'm very churched, and I took it for granted that once we met, there would be a strong, shared consciousness. I mean, he was the opposite of overbearing, and you could feel his fragility. It was the fragility of the man who had given his all in leadership and effort. I felt reverence. I felt like kneeling down and asking for his blessing. That is not part of the Baptist tradition, so I knew enough not to do it. For him, it would have seemed idolatrous. How did you see him within the tradition, either your tradition or his? Well, of, or... Course, of course he was a prophet. I mean, that's a no-brainer. Prophets are people who stand in the, in the turmoil of history and communicate to their brothers and sisters some aspect of God's vision of what's going on in the human world at that time. That's what a prophet is, and of course he was a prophet. And I say to you this morning that if you have never found something so dear and so precious to you that you will die for it, 
then you aren't fit to live. Make it plain. Make it plain. Dr. King's philosophy of nonviolence compelled him to speak out against the war, even though it meant making enemies in the white establishment. That same philosophy was also alienating some of the very people he was seen to represent. Some great issue. By the middle of 1967, much of black America viewed Dr. King as sort of old hat or, or obsolete. Among younger urban African Americans, Dr. King's insistence that nonviolence was a fundamental ethical precept to which everyone had to adhere was viewed as out of date uh, in, in the era of urban disorder and rioting. I did not like the concept of turn the other cheek, a philosophy and strategy of nonviolence would only mean people in power would continue to trample over us, and we had to be prepared to take stronger action if necessary. Herman Blake was one black intellectual who bristled at King's message of nonviolent resistance and resented his famous I Have a Dream march on Washington. I was angry. I wasn't about to go, and a number of us didn't. And we really were very scornful. Scornful in the sense that this man is so out of touch that the only way he can see our freedom is in a dream. That was, to us, the most outrageous, ridiculous thing he could have said. I would not have gone around the corner to hear him speak. I considered him to be the kind of person who made the establishment feel good about our oppression. I did. I'm not saying I was right. In fact, I was wrong, but I was scornful. Dr. King's policy was that nonviolence would achieve the gains for black people in the United States. A lot of people want to talk about, oh, I don't know, Stokely Carmichael. He only made one fallacious assumption. In order for nonviolence to work, your opponent must have a conscience. The United States has none. Has none. Dorothy Cotton. I remember sitting at Martin's at his kitchen table and Stokely Carmichael and another fellow who was uh, working with the Muslims with Stokely, uh, sitting at Martin's uh, kitchen table, and, and it was like, I'll call it a friendly argument. And I remember at that table, Martin would get sort of quiet. He was really, really thinking, but and Stokely was trying to argue with him. But imagine Stokely trying to convince uh, this proponent of, of nonviolence, convince him that it was now time to take up arms. And Martin would say things like, so what shall we do, go kill some white folks? That night is one of the times that Martin said, well, Stokely, I know you don't agree, but if I'm the last lone voice speaking for nonviolence, that I will do. And he talked again about his vision for the kind of society we should look forward to. Dr. King's vision of a just society soon called for another march on the nation's capital. We're coming to Washington in a poor people's campaign. Yes, we're going to bring the tired, the poor, the huddled masses. We were in my home. We 
we were uh, strategizing on what to do with the Poor People's Campaign. And the task that uh, Dr. King had envisioned for us was far greater than anything we had just seen. We're going to bring those who have known long years of hurt and neglect. Dr. King first gives voice to the idea of mounting the Poor People's Campaign in August of 1967. And by August of 1967, King is, is deeply frustrated that his efforts to put economic inequality on the national political agenda have been so unsuccessful. We're going to bring those who've come to feel that life is a long and desolate corridor with no exit sign. And uh, the minute he talked about leveling the playing field, feeding the poor, uh, housing the homeless, changing the, the economic and social landscape to that extent, provoked the anger of uh, America's ruling forces. We're not coming to tab Washington. We're coming to demand that the government will address itself to the problem of poverty. Dr. King was deeply pessimistic about the prospects for any significant uh, success or change. Was there any sense, either with him or with people around him, that the campaign actually might make or break him? During the latter months of 1967, everyone around Dr. King increasingly sees him as exhausted, as drained, drained not only physically but emotionally. One can use the word depression uh, to speak of King's attitude and, and state of mind during those months. The Poor People's Campaign ultimately failed, but it was yet another cross Dr. King felt he had to bear. And the slow, grinding pace of creating social change pushed him to his physical and emotional limits. Dorothy Cotton. There's a yellow chair in my living room, and I remember Martin sitting in that chair one evening, and I, I could see Martin getting really just tired. He was a human being, obviously, and, uh, and he was tired and didn't feel like struggling anymore. I can still look at that chair and remember him sitting there one evening and saying, maybe I should take the offer of leading a church in England. But this was after uh, several years of struggling. You're listening to To Heal a Sick Nation from the CBC documentary program, Ideas. Coming up after this short break, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s last Christmas sermon, his thoughts about the danger he was in, and his lasting legacy. Stay with us. Welcome back to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. Today we're listening to a very special episode of Ideas, a documentary program from the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. Dr. Martin Luther King. The time has come for man to experiment with nonviolence in all areas of human conflict. For Canada's centennial celebration in 1967, the CBC invited Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. to speak, and against all odds, 
he agreed. The story behind that broadcast sheds new light on this tumultuous chapter of the civil rights movement. So, of course, we wanted to share it with you. Let's get back to To Heal a Sick Nation, hosted by Paul Kennedy. The FBI was following King's every move. He was now openly criticized by both black and white America. The media was increasingly hostile, and he'd angered the White House, and the pressures just kept ratcheting up. And all these things eventually gave him this kind of tick. It was an expulsion of air that gave him a kind of a, a, a hesitation of speech. Now, for somebody who's a public speaker, that's a terrible thing to happen. But once he got into his stride, it never affected him standing on the platform. It wasn't something that was broadly uh, familiar to the public. Certainly those of us who worked closest with him were aware of it. It was obviously something, although it manifested itself biologically, it was really due to stress, sleepless nights, and early rising and and then sometimes it got we had to wait for him to recover from it although we had commented on it uh, he just said you know it's a it's an affliction that uh, I don't know where it's going I'm I never had it before and I'm not quite sure what it's about but it'll be okay It was in this hothouse of ever-mounting pressure on Dr. King that Janet Somerville still had to get the remaining Massey lectures done, so she followed him to his home base. I went to Atlanta to solve a professional problem. I mean, the Massey lectures have to be good. It's You really let the CBC down if you come up with a second-rate Massey lecture series. The first thing I did was I went to church on Sunday. His church? His church. That's Ebenezer. Ebenezer Baptist Church. How did you get there? I took a taxi from the hotel. The taxi driver said he was white. Ma'am, are you sure you want to go to that part of town? That's a black part of town, you know. (laughs) I said, I'm going to Martin Luther King's church. He didn't say anything, but he stopped arguing (laughs) and drove me to the church. What was that like? Wonderful. The love between that pastor and that congregation, it was like a, a warm ocean current that you, that you discover when you're swimming sometime and suddenly everything's warmer because a current has, has come across that's several degrees warmer. than. Mm. It was a beautiful experience to be part of that congregation at that time in history. After the church... Dr. King and Coretta King and about an 11-year-old boy who was his son, we all got into a car, Dr. King was driving, and we, we drove outside of Atlanta to a small Baptist church that was having its, I think, 75th anniversary. And the very elderly minister of that small church was waiting outside. And when Dr. King arrived and got out of the car, the older minister came toward Dr. King and took his hands in both of his and said, You're shaking this world, brother. You're shaking this world. (laughs) By the time we drove back, it was pretty clear to them that we were part of an ecumenical clan and that we were um, the same kind of people, except that they were much better at it. (laughs) 
<laughs> than I was. How, how did that become clear? Because of the way you acted in the churches? or What did you discuss, for example, in the car ride? <laughs> One thing we discussed was what kind of a theological problem it would be for Dr. King if I, as a Roman Catholic, had answered his altar call. What's, what's an altar call? An altar call is part of an evangelical uh, church service. It, it comes after the sermon, and it invites anyone who who feels moved at the time to especially, you know, give their heart, welcome Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior. Did you have any, any uh, it, urge it was, to do it? It was fun. <laughs> fun. How was the tone? Was well, it, was we were it teasing. It was, a, it was a, I mean, Dr. King was a rather liberal theologian, as you probably know. He was not a literalist about any of its elements. The person sitting beside me in the car was his son. And shortly after starting the car, Dr. King lit up a cigarette. And the boy said, Daddy, don't smoke. Don't you know smoking can kill you? Don't smoke that cigarette. Dr. King looked kind of sheepish. <laughs> and then the boy said to me, you know, when we're at home, I try to hide his cigarettes. Even if he would spank me, I'd still hide his cigarettes. But, you know, he wouldn't spank me. <laughs> <laughs> and it was very touching. I'm pretty sure that the boy would know that threats to his father's life were simply part of his life. I didn't, I didn't ask him about that or anything, of course. But the intensity with, with which he felt the threat from cigarettes to his father's life suggested to me that he knew that there was more than cigarettes threatening his father's life. We all think about it, and every now and then I think about my own death, and I think about my own funeral, and I don't think of it in a morbid sense. Biographer David Garrow. Ever since the beginning of the Montgomery bus boycott uh, in early 1956, uh, Dr. King had had a fundamentally self-sacrificial understanding of, of his role. He had believed very rationally, very very quietly, ever since 1956, that sooner uh, rather than later, he would be killed. That that was just an, an inescapable consequence of the role into which he had been cast. Harry Belafonte. In 1968, I was doing The Tonight Show. I had taken it over for a week, and one of the guests that I had on in that week was Dr. King. In that evening that I had Dr. King, I'd noticed that uh, in recent meetings, a matter of a couple of weeks that I'd been seeing him off and on, there was no evidence of this tick. I flew out of Washington this afternoon, and as soon as we started... He had just come to the airport. He arrived late. ...had mechanical difficulties, and that kept us on the ground a good while. And finally, we took off and landed, and whenever I land after mechanical difficulties, <laughs> I'm always very happy. Now, I don't want to give you an impression that as a Baptist preacher, I don't have faith in God in the air. It's simply that I've had more experience with him on the ground. <laughs> he said, I've made my peace with death. He said, it no longer distracts me. I'm no longer preoccupied with it. The very first day I stepped into this space to talk to freedom and justice, I was stabbed walking in the street. I was near death, an ice pick near to my heart. If I'd coughed, as the doctor told me, I would have been dead. So from the very beginning, I've been aware of the fact that the life could be instantly taken away. 
but I made my peace with that. Hence, no tick. It was now coming up to Christmas 1967. Janet Somerville and recording engineer Del McKenzie had one last chance at getting a great Massey lecture. That meant getting Dr. King out from behind a prepared script and into his pulpit. Why would that be a difficult idea to come to? I mean, everybody in the world knows that preaching was his primary method of communication. It was pretty clear to me that we should ask him to do at least one of the talks as a sermon in his own church. And he certainly liked the idea. What did you want from that lecture? What were you hoping that last lecture might be? We wanted it to be his case for nonviolence. But mostly from a radio point of view, we wanted it to be in an acoustic and in a human setting that allowed our listeners to enjoy and savor his characteristic impassioned style of speaking, which had not been the sound of the first four lectures in the series. Del, what do you remember about actually recording those lectures? What do you remember, the atmosphere in the church? Yeah, that that was, it was a Christmas. I can remember a man with a beautiful bass voice singing, Sweet Little Jesus Boy. Which is I had never heard it before. It is the most moving Christmas song there is. It goes, sweet little Jesus boy. We made you be born in a manger. Born in a manger, low, sweet little holy child. We, we didn't, didn't know, know who, who you, you was. Know <laughs> <laughs> you come to save us, Lord. Take all our sins away. We was blind and couldn't see. Didn't know it was thee. Yeah, that's a great song. Oh, I love Jesus. On Christmas Eve, the CBC presents Dr. Martin Luther King's Christmas oh. Sermon on Peace and Nonviolence as the fifth and final Massey Lecture for 1967. Peace on Earth this Christmas season finds us a rather bewildered human race. It was such a normal Sunday, and the service unfolded according to its usual stages, you know. The congregation knew it was going to happen. Our world is sick with war. Everywhere we turn, we see its ominous possibilities. And yet, my friends, a Christmas hope for peace. As he preached, there was such a longing such a longing for peace with justice. You could feel it in everyone that that you spoke to or just exchanged eye contact with, especially in Dr. King. How can one avoid being depressed when he sees with his own eyes evidences of millions of people going to bed hungry at night? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. As I beheld these conditions, something within me cried out, can we in America stand idly by and not be concerned? And an answer came, oh no. Peace with justice. I mean, everything desirable in human life is there, but the two are so hard to keep together. We spend millions of dollars every day to store surplus food. 
So that human longing for that utterly necessary goal was um, simply the common oxygen that day. In the wrinkled stomachs of the millions of God's children in Asia and Africa, Latin America, and even in our own nation who go to bed hungry at night. And he was very aware that on many sides and from many different angles, opposition to his take on hope was hardening. By the time he recorded, he wasn't just having a dream, he was staring down the nightmares. 1963, on a sweltering August afternoon, we stood in Washington, D.C. We talked to the nation about many things. Toward the end of that afternoon, I tried to talk to the nation about a dream that I'd had. And I must confess to you today that not long after talking about that dream, I started seeing it turn into a nightmare. I remember the first time I saw that dream turn I saw a man who was struggling with every ounce of his strength to safeguard and promote the civil rights movement that was then struggling in the United States at at that very time. He was afraid that the impatience of the younger generation of leadership that had been reading, you know, Franz Fanon rather than uh, Gandhi, that their impatience would shatter the movement into parts that would begin to fight each other. That was his burning concern, that that not happen. But now, the time has come for man to experiment with nonviolence in all areas of human conflict. And that means nonviolence on an international scale. There are relatively few human beings, especially in Western civilization, who have been able to sustain public leadership from a basis of nonviolence. Martin Luther King is one of the few. And I remember I myself at that time was struggling with the question, is it realistic, is it human, is it utopian to believe that you can commit yourself to justice and peace from a nonviolent stance consistently? And for me, it was still a very open question. And... Uh, I must say I was hanging on his every word (laughs) because it is such a great question and such a profound question. I close today by saying I still have a dream when there will be peace on earth and goodwill toward men. It will be a glorious day. The morning stars will sing together and the sons of God will shout for joy. At the conclusion of the sermon, there was a feeling of completeness and an affirmation. But you know, the congregation was worried too. They all knew how fraught and how challenged and how storm beset this central idea is in in real life, in real history. Dr. Martin Luther King, giving his Christmas sermon in Ebenezer Baptist Church, Atlanta, Georgia. This is the final Massey Lecture for 1967. Production in Atlanta by Del McKenzie. Program organizer, Janet Somerville.
some weeks after the Masses had been broadcast, I was at home one evening with my elderly mother, who had recently had a serious accident and was rather frail at the time. And the phone rang, and I picked it up, and it was Dr. Martin Luther King. And not wasting any time, he said, Janet, I want you to come down and help me heal a sick nation. <laughs> well, I didn't say, you what? <laughs> <laughs> the phone call was fairly short. Dr. King obviously had been talking to the team, and they needed writers. They needed people who could pull together the kind of translate into a speech or an essay or, or an article for a newspaper or something like that, the kind of thinking that they were doing all the time. They were thinking all the time. And it wasn't surprising to me that they needed to add a writer to their team. I just didn't expect that writer to be me. <laughs> <laughs> Why did you pick you, do you think? I think he recognized exactly what I recognized, that although I was pipsqueak and he was a giant, we were exactly the same kind of product of Christian faith struggling with social justice. So I, I went into what we call in my tribe a discernment process. <laughs> <laughs> and I reluctantly wrote a long letter to Andrew Young. So this letter is dated February 4th, 1968. My dear brother Andy, by the way... Andrew Young was one of King's closest friends and advisors. I've been thinking hard and sleeping very little. As I understand your proposal, SCLC, that's a Southern Christian Leadership Conference, and Dr. King particularly, needs a resident articulator, somebody to translate the developing thinking of the movement into speeches and articles. Well, I think you know I'm tremendously honored to be considered for this. In fact, awed. But before I get all wrapped up in describing the positive emotions the idea gives me, I'd like to put down some of the reasons I feel it might not be a good idea. As well I was very much needed at home, primarily with my 75-year-old mother, who had just had a, uh, both her legs broken in a traffic accident, which nearly finished her. My older sister, Anne, who was working in uh, Ghana, teaching in Ghana, had just been killed a few months before in a traffic accident after five years in Ghana. I'm the only member of the family who is free to live at home at this point. But after all this, Andy, the fact remains that my heart says, how can I say no? I love Dr. King and you and your families. You might find four pages of inconclusiveness rather annoying, so I'll stop this letter. Besides, it's 2 a.m., it's clear that I should not make a major move until the fall. I'm certainly committed to CBC until the end of June. From my heart, thank you for asking, and thank Dr. King for the honor you did me by asking. Let's see where the spirit blows. Affectionately in Christ, Janet Somerville. Dr. King was sitting in his car when the shot was fired. 
Officers raced to the scene and surrounded the car, and other units roared into the area and surrounded the hotel. The day that he was actually killed, I was having breakfast at the motel where we were staying. He could see me from his window sitting in the restaurant, and he said, somebody tell Dorothy to come up here. But I knew I had to run back to Atlanta, and of course, I will come right back now. And, and Martin said, uh, this is on the day he was killed. Uh, Dorothy, you can get a later plane. And my words to him were, Martin, I'll come right back. As of this moment, police are now chasing a young white man seen in a white Mustang on the streets of Memphis. And when I got back to Atlanta, I said, I'm going to take a nap. So I got in bed to take a nap, but someone knocked on my door and gave me the news, and I was so stunned. And I jumped off the bed and headed over to his house and I walked right into the house and back into Coretta's, into their bedroom. And Coretta was uh, sprawled on the bed now. And uh, I don't even remember who was in the room and just sat there, but um, that's how I got the uh, news that he had been killed. I was standing in front of my TV. I was in my home. One of the members of my house staff uh, called me and told me to watch the television immediately. And I turned it on and there it was. In Washington, a shocked President Johnson heard the tragic news. America is shocked and saddened by the brutal slaying tonight of Dr. Martin Luther King. I ask every citizen to reject the blind violence I was absolutely stunned that has struck Dr. King. Not without expectation, uh, finally. This spirit, this articulation, this social and political philosophy, which was taking hold so brilliantly, were gaining the high ground. The only thing the enemy could do would be to kill it. And we find ourselves in this great dilemma because every time you develop a great voice, the first thing we do is kill it. Not just dismiss it or suffocate it, we kill it. In the end, that's what we got. Martyrdom is a concept that had has been in my mind from early childhood. Like the idea of martyrdom as a completion of someone's witness was very deep-rooted in my thinking. So there was a kind of an immediate sense that this was, a, in one way, a very fitting fulfillment of the witness of Dr. King. And it was not the first time someone had tried to kill him. I mean, he, he lived, his wife and children lived, with the possibility that this could happen at any time. So. I wasn't greatly surprised, and especially what I remembered so poignantly was his son's scolding of his father for smoking. Daddy, don't smoke. I mean, smoking could kill you. My heart went out to his family and his teammates and his wife. Oh, I was destroyed by that. I was destroyed by that assassination. Herman Blake. Do you think it's possible to say that Martin Luther King in some ways committed a form of revolutionary suicide? Yes, I would say that definitely so. I mean, when King started out, he was not committed to nonviolence, but he had to learn. And by my studying Martin Luther King, I became persuaded he was right, and I became not only committed to that. I became an advocate. I never thought I could be that way. But as I matured, I could. 
because when it happens, I can see it in people. And indeed, I think I've seen it in myself. And I've been in situations where people have attacked me, yes, and I have not responded. And I remembered one time when someone hit me twice and I just stood there and they said, I don't know how to have a fight with someone who won't fight back. And they just walked away. So you learned in some sense how to turn the other cheek. No, there wasn't turning the other cheek as much as it wasn't responding. Nonviolence. Nonviolence. The 1967 Massey Lectures may not represent Martin Luther King at his oratorical best, but they're arguably the most detailed record there is of his thinking about the misuses and abuses of power on a global scale. And the despair that he experienced towards the end of his life is counterbalanced by the hope that still shines at their core. If he was sitting right now where I am, what would you say to him? I'm through, doctor. You got me into this mess, get me out of it. (laughs) What do you think he'd say to you? He said, you're on your own, (laughs) just like I am. Now, in seriousness, uh, what would I say to him? Well, the reason I struggle with that question is because it is my, my absolute belief that had he lived we would not be where we are. Is he still with you today? I have a, in my computer, and as a matter of fact, I got a new cell phone and I'm putting on that. I carry his speeches live. Although I'm very familiar with them, I tap in every now and then. You could probably recite them. Some of them, uh, but throughout the course of the day, I just listen to them. We can't ever give up. And rather than trying to retain it. We must work passionately and unrelentingly for first class citizenship. I'm Renourished. But we shall not in the process relinquish our privilege to love. I think he didn't give up on the dream. He just didn't know how distant it would be. Nonviolence as the way forward is still a minority conviction. But, you know, we didn't have a Third World War. There is still as much reason to hope as there ever was. There's as much reason to be engaged and committed and to try. And it's never going to be a downhill ski run. It's never going to um, feel easy and triumphant. No, never. But there's as much reason to hope the day after Dr. King was shot as there was the day before. To Heal a Sick Nation was hosted by Paul Kennedy and produced by Greg Kelly. It first appeared on Ideas from the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. The original production crew behind this famous broadcast had not seen each other for more than 40 years until they came back together to make the story. 
Now that you've heard this show, you may be interested in listening to the actual Massey Lectures featuring Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Believe it or not, they are available and easy to access. For a link, visit our website, thirdcoastfestival.org. You've been listening to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Dennis Funk and curated by Johanna Zorn and Sarah Geis of the Third Coast Festival. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear more than 1,500 outstanding documentaries from around the world and subscribe to our podcast. Support for ReSound comes from Emma, a web-based email marketing and communication service helping businesses and nonprofits manage their email campaigns and online surveys in style. More at myemma.com. Support for ReSound also comes from Whole Foods Market, with new locations in Streeterville and DePaul, supplying a wide variety of natural and organic groceries. You can find all the latest news about Whole Foods Market openings at wfm.com. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Agadino Foundation, the Menaki Foundation, and the National Endowment for the Arts. The Third Coast Festival is supported in part by a grant from the Illinois Arts Council Agency. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. The Third Coast Festival, now an independent arts organization, was originally founded at WBEZ Chicago. If you want to contact us, we would love to hear from you. Email us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. You can also connect with us through Facebook and Twitter. Resound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else.